Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 69, A Conversation with Dr. Irvi Shaw. Dr. Shaw is a hematologic oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City, and she specializes in multiple myeloma and other plasma cell disorders. She is a physician and a researcher, and some of her research actually centers on the role of nutrition in cancer, and specifically, a lot of the work that she's doing is looking at the benefits of a plant-based diet and how that factors in. Dr. Shah is also a cancer survivor and was diagnosed with lymphoma when she was a hematology oncology fellow. On today's episode, we talk about all of that. We talk about the work that she's doing, what it was like being diagnosed with cancer while being an oncology fellow and learning how to treat cancer. There's a lot of great, great conversation on this episode, and I hope that you enjoy it. And with that, it is my honor to welcome Dr. Irvi Shaw to the Interlude Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude Podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Welcome, Irvi. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Eleonora. It's really great to be here, and thank you for the invitation. So can you start by telling the listeners a little bit about who you are, what you do, what your research interests are, all that good stuff? Sounds great. So I'm a hematologist, oncologist, and clinical investigator at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. I started as faculty a few years ago and did my fellowship training in New York before that, and then residency in Boston. But prior to that, I grew up in India, did med school there, um, and lived in Mumbai for um, the years growing up before moving to the U.S. In terms of my current job and research, I do I do I see patients about two days a week, and mostly plasma cell disorders. So it's multiple myeloma, which is a blood cancer, and um, many of you may not have heard of it, but. It's similar to, um, you know, lymphoma and leukemia. It's just one of those that has gotten less attention. And so often people have not heard of it until either they have it or they know somebody who has it. Um, The interesting part about multiple myeloma is that there are precursor disorders, meaning disorders that happen before myeloma called monoclonal gammopathy and smoldering myeloma. So I also see patients with those disorders and those I consider as precursor disorders, similar to when you think about breast cancer and DCIS. And this gives us an opportunity both to deal with patients before they actually develop cancer and also patients who already have cancer. So if someone's listening to this and they may or may not have heard of this group of disorders before, they're thinking, well, how would I know if I have something like this, right? And we know um, that these pre-myeloma conditions, the MGUS or the smoldering myeloma are often picked up on maybe routine blood work, right? So how would someone, do we check for this? Is this routine screening? 
So over the age of 50, about 3% of the population have one of these precursor disorders. So it's, it's a sizable number of people. But the reason why we don't check, and I wouldn't recommend anybody just go check because they hear this, is because um, there isn't a, we don't do much to change the trajectory of it or anything because most patients will remain as a, um, like a smoldering myeloma and MGUS and very rarely do they develop multiple myeloma eventually. And so because there's nothing that we're doing to change the course at this time yet, it doesn't make sense to screen and then have to deal with that. But if a patient has the test for some other reason where they think that they suspect that they might have multiple myeloma and then this is found, then we like to follow them regularly with blood tests because this protein that is formed by this disorder can be detected in the blood. So it's an easy blood test to follow. And what kind of research are you doing along with that? So my research interests uh, initially started out as epigenetics, and then I did immune therapies and CAR T cells, which I still do a little bit of. But in the last couple of years, I focused my efforts mainly on modifiable risk factors for myeloma and cancers. Um, and part of this is based on my personal experience with cancer, but also um, just knowing that this is something that patients always are interested in knowing what can I do or how can things change. And I think there isn't a lot of information or research done in this area. Um, so things that we're doing, for instance, in myeloma is looking at the impact of obesity, diabetes, on outcomes and on develop, risk of development of these disorders. But we're also looking at diet and microbiome. So we're looking at the impact of diet on the microbiome and the impact of the microbiome on outcomes of myeloma once it's diagnosed. And what, okay, so you hear, we all hear the term microbiome, your gut, probiotics. Like, can you break this down for what this actually is? Sure. So uh, microbiome is a term, I, I, I agree, it's used a lot. Um, it's basically means the, the gut flora inside of our um, intestine. So you can have gut microbiome, but you can also have skin microbiome or oral microbiome. So microbiome is basically the bacteria and fungi and other microorganisms that live inside of us or are around us. And that's uh, what we are learning over the years is that actually having some of the healthy microbiomes is very important, or having some of these healthy bugs is very important for good health. And um, so understanding which bugs, you know, what diet can modulate and um, which bugs and increase the good bugs or decrease the good bugs uh, can also help understand what the um, outcomes would be for a particular cancer. And is there anything that you found that you're able to share so far? So actually, we are just uh, we just submitted our work to the Myeloma um, uh, Society and also um, American Society of Hematology. So we'll have that data coming soon. But what I can share is so far, we've already published from our group showing that there is um, certain microbiome changes are associated with um, with better outcomes, meaning improved uh, likelihood of what we call MRD negativity or absence of disease. So if you have certain bacteria, you're more likely to have um, a better response to the treatment. And so knowing this in itself, we decided to also look at diet to say, 
if we can we see whether a particular dietary pattern is associated with um, changes in the microbiome, which is in turn associated with the, the uh, outcomes and uh, response to chemotherapy. So we'll be presenting some of that data, but I think there's already, you know, some information published around this. It's just not focused with the dietary part because most of it is looking at microbiome and outcomes. So diet, changing your diet for whatever dietary pattern, um, that can affect your microbiome. Yes. So in the non-cancer population, there are studies looking at like, um, there's this one study which was published in Nature um, like five, six years ago, um, which I think is a very interesting study because what they did is they only had like nine patients or so, but they made them eat like five days of a very plant heavy diet and then five days of an animal-based heavy diet, and then looked at changes in the bacteria, looked at changes in meta like markers of what the bacteria produce, like metabolites, like butrate levels. And what they showed is there's a significant difference because of the change in the fiber content of the foods and everything. And so based on all of this information that's available and um, large population-wide studies showing that plant-forward diets have less cancer incidence. We've uh, developed an interventional study where, you know, patients with these precursor disorders, as I spoke to you about, um, we're going to be uh, and giving them like three months of a plant-based diet and also giving them um, six months of like nutrition counseling uh, and a, a research, research dietitian visits. And we've partnered with a company Plantable for that. And so we're, we're looking at what the impact of this is on the microbiome, on epigenetics, and on the myeloma markers over time. Um, and we're, we're enriching for a population with a higher BMI just because we know that patients with an elevated BMI or uh, those that are overweight or obese are more likely to progress to myeloma. So, so about two times more likely. So we, we decided to pick that population for this pilot study. And I'm really interested um, in, you know, it's so hard to do nutrition studies, right? Because you tell people, we tell people all the time, okay, eat less meat, eat less processed food, but they're going to be on a study. How are you I guess, how are they going to do this, right? Like, how do you, do you collect daily food diaries or do you trust that they're not sneaking like, you know, hamburger in there? And if they are, that's cool, but I'm just curious. Yeah, no, that's, I think, a very good question. And this is the biggest challenge with nutritional studies and data because most data in cancer that we have is epidemiologic, means large population-wide studies showing a link between certain dietary patterns and cancer or certain foods and cancer. So trying to do these interventional studies are extremely challenging, expensive, and you know, ex and also it's hard to do it for decades or years at a time. So you can only do it for a certain number of months before um, you have to stop the study because you're asking patients to make big changes. Uh, what we are doing is we are providing the meals, we are providing lunch and dinner, so that helps with, uh, with more compliance. Um, and then we're also having a very close follow-up with the research dietitian and also um, access to an app plantable that they could you know, find recipes, grocery lists, things like that. And then we'll be doing dietary recalls, but that will be more like... Um, every 70 for 72 hours every two weeks or so which will be used for measuring compliance 
through the study. But that's still pretty good because a lot of this current studies ask people, you know, in the last year, how many times did you eat this? And I always feel like one, there's probably some bias and you always want to say you did better than you did. Yeah. And how do you remember how many times in the last year did you, you know, eat broccoli or something like that? So that's, that's really remarkable research. I mean, in, in gynecologic and breast cancers, there's not really much in the gynecologic space, but in breast cancers, we know that the more whole foods, you know, plant-based that you can eat, the better it is for you. And the big yeah. thing with breast cancer is limiting processed meats and red meats and, and any processed food in, in general. Yeah, the, the, what you said about the dietary questionnaires is very true in terms of when these questionnaires do it, they're looking at the past year and we are doing work with those questionnaires as well with patients and, you know, getting them to fill them out. I'm sure that, you know, it's not perfect, but what these questionnaires give us is like an overall dietary pattern. I don't think you can get details out of it, but if you want like a broad sense of what they're doing, um, then I think it's helpful. Um, so, so we're doing that in some of our studies, but, and also in this study, but I think, you know, when, when you want the real details, then you have to do the 24 hour recall and that's the challenging part. I wish you luck because I think that's going to be really, you know, practice changing depending on what the results show. So if someone's listening to this and they have been wanting to start a plant-based diet, and I like that you're not necessarily talking about being vegan, right? You're just talking about being plant-forward or plant-based, which doesn't exclude eating, you know, dairy or chicken or fish once in a while. So how does a person go about trying to make some of these changes in their diet? Yeah, so that that's a good question. And I think, you know, the first thing is knowing what kind of a person you are and what triggers or what things are most important to you. Like, I think there are some people who cannot do it gradually. And they say, like, if we do it gradually, we're never going to do it. And there are some who say that if I just change everything and just stick with it, cold turkey, that's how it works for them. And so I think understanding where you fit into that is the first thing to know, are you wanting to do this gradually over some months or immediately? I think for myself, I'm the type who needs to do it gradually over time, because that's how I feel I would sustain it. And so when I decided to start, you know, transitioning, towards eating this way I did it in a very gradual way where it was more organically done than um, not so I, I didn't feel like oh I'm really missing this or that because I did it so gradually like for instance um, when I wanted to cut back on dairy and part of it is because you know I grew up as a vegetarian but I ate a lot of eggs and dairy because I always believe that a lot of that is healthy but then as I've read the data and things I do think that you know we need even if we do eat those things it has to be in a, in moderation or in a very small amounts compared to you know the plant forward foods and the unprocessed foods and so and I would eat a lot of processed foods as well so it's not like it was a vegetarian diet that was a whole food plant-based diet and I think understanding the difference between those two things are important so a whole food plant-based diet is like almost 80 to 90 percent plant forward but you're 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 maximizing the whole foods and the unprocessed foods and things like that so things that I did 
like practical changes is that I used to always have like some cheese at home or yogurt at home. And what I started doing is I, I stopped buying the cheese initially. So um, that would automatically make me pick other options. And then I found like nutritional yeast is a good substitute for cheese. So I would use that in term instead of it. And I, I, I realized like that in itself was doing a whole good, a lot of good for me because I, I was cutting back on a lot of that. And then similarly, and, and then I still continued to eat cheese maybe outside occasionally at restaurants because I was like, um, you know what, I don't want to ever feel like I'm missing it. But then eventually, as I did this gradually and I realized the benefits for me, um, I was able to just move over completely to that very gradually and I never felt like I'm missing it. And that's what I do is like if I'm really craving something and one time, like if somebody puts a chocolate in front of me that might have some dairy in it and I want to eat it, I, I, I'm, ne I'm never taking away the choice from me. So that, I think that's one thing where if I really want to, I might might try it. But at the at at an overall level, I think um, this has helped me move in a very organic or gradual way, which doesn't feel like I'm restricting myself. And what are you doing for protein? I think that a lot of people struggle with, you know, getting the protein and there's so much out there right now is protein substitutes, right? The Beyond Burgers, the the nuggets, the, you know, whatever, right. There's all this stuff, yeah. Morningstar farms. And a lot of that is still processed. So it's better, I guess, than like eating a steak every day. But I tell people, you know, you don't really want to eat that processed food daily. So what are some great sources of protein? That's a great question. So one thing I would like to start with is that I, I personally think, and it's not just me, I think, you know, if we just think about the protein requirements of any uh, adult human, it's about 0.8 grams per kilogram. And if you calculate that, it's it's about like in a 60 kilo person, it's around 48 grams. And if you say, even if you need a higher protein diet and you say one gram per kilo, it's about 60 grams. And if you just calculate, even plant foods have protein. And if you eat whole plant foods that are not processed, you will get your protein requirements. And for instance, like, you know, broccoli has protein or peanut butter will have protein and beans have protein. So I'm, I, I agree that you might need to think about it a little bit in terms of what you're getting in, because if you don't eat legumes or beans or any of that at all, then yes, maybe you might be on the lower side of getting your protein requirements. But if you're eating enough of these healthy foods and beans and grains, you're going to get your protein requirement. That's one thing. And the second thing is, I think we, we are in this, um, in the United States and in the world, I think we're all um, worried about protein deficiency and we're all wondering where do I get my protein from? But I don't think anybody's really protein deficient if unless you're really calorie deficient and malnourished. So most people are not protein deficient. I think what most people really need to focus on is where are they getting their fiber from? And if we, if, if you, uh, you think about like the US population, I think only five to 10% meet their fiber requirements of the day of 30 grams. So the majority do not, and only plant foods give you fiber. And so I think, you know, when people ask me the question, how do I get my protein? I, I, I think that the question should change and talk about how do you get your fiber? Because if you're getting whole plant foods 
and getting your fiber, you will get your protein. And I've done, you know, some of these calculations with like a fully plant-based diet and a fully animal-based diet. And the, even the plant-based diet exceeds, exceeds protein requirements if it's just done right. And animal-based diets can sometimes exceed by double or more the protein requirements and very high protein diets aren't healthy as well because there's increased kidney disease and mortality with that. I like that perspective. I've actually never thought about that fiber, but you're right. The fiber is so important, um, especially with, you know, the microbiome and yeah. you know, regulating your intestinal tract and all of that. So you mentioned, you know, that you had personal experience with cancer and kind of the way that you transitioned into eating this way. Can you talk a little bit about the changes or things that you experienced in your life that kind of led to this path? Yeah. I've overall always been somebody who I, I think about as like following a healthy lifestyle. I was always active. Like I, I did track and field as um, in school and um, ate overall, I think a healthy diet. So I, I'm, I couldn't really pinpoint what might be the cause. And I think a lot of people always wonder, like when you do develop a cancer diagnosis is like what could cause it. So about five years ago in 2016, um, April is when I got diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And that was an absolute shock to me because again, I, I thought that I was doing most things right and everything. So it didn't make a lot of sense. Another thing that I've learned is like most people, which I, I see with all my patients as well, as most people, when they get a diagnosis like this, they're always searching for answers as to why could, why did, why me or why did this happen? And so trying to, trying to um, understand that or think about it is what led me to, you know, read more about this topic. I do think that, you know, that we need to take the blame out of it. And that's one very important thing that we need to tell um, patients or talk to them about is that just because you have um, a cancer diagnosis doesn't mean that it's because you've done something wrong or that you have to blame yourself for it. A lot of these things happen because of genetics or environmental reasons or other things, or even if it is related to um, some habits in your life, this is an opportunity to think about like what you could do for the future and not look at what happened in the past. And so th that's kind of how I um, got into reading about this, but it was all more after I finished my treatment and everything like probably six, eight months later. Where were you in medical training when you were diagnosed? I was actually in my first year of my Hemonk Fellowship um, at Montefiore in New York. So uh, what was interesting to me was that I was, it, it, there are a lot of, there's a lot of irony or, you know, in this, that I was in my heme malignancy or blood cancer rotation. Um, I was on the inpatient side, like taking care of patients with lymphoma, leukemia, myeloma, transplant, all of that. And um, it, it was a weekend, um, the Friday before a weekend is when I noticed that I had this like neck swelling and it didn't make a lot of sense. I had been pretty tired like a few weeks or a few months prior. But again, I always attributed to that to being in the first year of fellowship and being really hectic. And then when I noticed the swelling, I was like, this cannot be infection and this cannot be this thing. So what exactly is it? But because it was already 5 p.m. on a Friday, I was not planning to go to an 
emergency room to figure this out. So it ended up being a very long weekend until Monday when I decided to, you know, talk to my attending then and say like, what do you think about this? Should we do a scan? And so I ended up doing a scan that same day at work. And then that led to one thing after the other. And in a week I had the diagnosis. And what was it like, you know, being diagnosed with the same disease that you were, you know, rounding on and treating, right? Like what was going through your mind at that time? So I I can tell you what went through my mind in the first year of fellowship before starting, you know, uh, before this happened um, was that doing an oncology fellowship in itself is like, uh, you know, difficult and challenging because you're seeing so many sick patients and um, things that patients are going through. And when I went through my blood cancer rotation, I had about two or three Hodgkin's lymphoma patients that I was taking care of, but I also had obviously all the other cancers, blood cancers I was taking care of. And when I treated the Hodgkin's lymphoma patients, um, I, I felt that, oh, th- this, is, this is a good prognosis cancer. So I, I didn't feel like that impacted their life that much because I felt like, oh, this one, this is a short-term treatment. This is going, this is curable and this is a good prognosis. And the rest of them, you know, the, the other cancers, I think, you know, I, I, I felt a little bit more like we need to think about what the treatment is or this might impact their life long-term or things. And um, when I ended up with Hodgkin's lymphoma, I think that perspective of mine changed a little bit because I think even though it is known to be a curable cancer, that the word cancer in itself and the treatment in itself, which is very long and uh, intense uh, and affects a lot of you, um, I think in itself makes it uh, a a big issue, not just um, thinking about it as like, okay, this is curable, but there is a lot of uncertainty at the time when it's diagnosed. And what was your treatment that you received? It was a chemotherapy for four cycles. So part, you know, the Hodgkin's lymphoma treatments are now changing in the last few years. But at the time when I got it and before, it's the very traditional old school chemotherapy drugs. And because of that, like you, you lose your hair with it. You know, nausea is a major issue. Um, it, there are other toxicities like, you know, lung toxicity or other things. So there are... Um, even though it is curable and um, it is cured for the most patients, the, the toxicities with that treatment can be like a little difficult to handle for patients sometimes. And, you know, you got through it. Um, and do you feel like you relate to patients differently now that you've experienced this life-changing event? Definitely. Um, I think um, like I said, you know, I, I think no, no symptom is small or is not, is not important in some ways. Like I think I look at it from the side of a patient and for them, this may be overwhelming or stressful or whatever it is, because when I dealt with this, like the oncologist in me knew like, oh, this is not a big deal. It, it will be a short-term treatment, but the patient in me could not, uh, reconcile that and like there was a lot of uncertainty to it and it was still very stressful to go through it so I think that perspective of knowing that even if it is a small issue it can sometimes be a big deal for the patient and you know understanding their perspective was I think very helpful 
So on that note, I'm going to ask you a question that I don't know if you can answer, but um, so a lot of patients, right, get told, and I don't really love this language, but they get told, oh, you're lucky you got the good cancer, right? Or you have this early cancer and you should be lucky. And I hate the word luck because the real luck yeah. would have been in not having it in the first place. But, you know, if you are diagnosed with an early stage cancer with a low risk of recurrence, you know, there's still this risk of recurrence that can be very paralyzing for patients. So here you are as an oncologist who have, you know, the, the kind of better prognosis cancer. Do you worry about recurrence? And if so, how do you kind of reconcile what you know as an oncologist with now being a patient? Yeah, I think that's a very, very good question. And I think that's part of also why I, I realized like how this impacts patients and their life. So I think the first, as more time goes by from the diagnosis, to me, I, I know that the likelihood is less based on, you know, what uh, oncology has taught us. And so um, to me, now that five years have passed, it seems like we technically call define this as cure or it's unlikely that it is going to come back. But in the first five years, um, you know, it's small symptoms or things that come up, sometimes it could, could it, it, I can't say that the thought never crossed my mind or it didn't, like, could this be related to something coming back? And I think that can be in itself stressful for um, somebody who's already dealt with it because you don't really want to go back to having to deal with that whole experience again. So, so yes, I agree with you that um, using the word like lucky is not, not fair for patients. And I think a lot of, you know, the terminology or words that are often used are sometimes we don't realize but they can be insensitive. Yeah, I think one of this kind of happens in more advanced cancers, but you have the language of, you know, the patient failed the treatment, right? Yes. No, the patient didn't fail. The, the treatment didn't work or it didn't work as well as we wanted to, but there's so much kind of language that blames the patient, which really we need to get away from. I, I totally agree. And I think that's changing. Uh, there are a lot of people um, talking about it, oncologists as well. So I think we will slowly see a change in terms of the language used. In, already we see it in like research or abstracts and papers. The language I see, you know, changing already and some making it very clear that they've changed it. I'm curious, do you tell patients about your diagnosis? So, so that's a very good question. And I, I want to answer it in two parts. I think one is that when um, initially, I, I, I generally do not bring it up out of like tell every patient because obviously it's, it, it takes away from what's tr troubling them or what the issue is that they've come to me for. So I pretty much never talk about it unless a patient, you know, is in a situation where I think my experience will help them get through it better. Or I can say that, like, I know what you're going through because I have gone through this in a certain way. So if I think that in that situation, it's actually going to make a difference or help in some way, then those are the times when I, I might bring it up or talk about it. Um, but otherwise, I don't always just um, right off the bat talk about it but I think you know it is on my profile um, and things like that so I think patients if they've read that many already know about it so it's not something that I'm hiding but at the same time I, I don't 
see a need to bring it up unless it, it's something they want to talk about or if it might help them. Well, that makes sense because they're there for their for condition and for them. But you're right. I mean, sometimes it might be helpful for them to hear, well, you know, I went through this and, you know, if they're, especially if they're younger or struggling to hear that they're going to be okay. Yeah. And I, and I think also that we don't, when we, we, I don't want the visit to become about me because obviously when we start talking about it, it's to be like, okay, when did it happen? What happened? What's the, what, what's the status of it now? Like there are many follow-up questions that will come in uh, when we have a limited amount of time, I don't want to distract from what they've come for. So I think that's the main reason why I don't bring it up. I also think right, you know, after the diagnosis, I, I, in the first few years, I found it harder to like talk about it and relive it every time I discussed it. So I think I talked less about it or didn't bring it up. And as time has moved on, I find it easier to maybe share or discuss it if somebody has questions about it. I think that is such a really important point. And I see this patients all the time, right? So, you know, if you've gone through whatever cancer and then, you know, someone or a friend or someone says, oh, so-and-so was diagnosed, can you talk to them? And I always tell my patients this, it is okay for you to say no, right? You may not be ready to relive it. It may bring up all this emotional trauma or stress, or it's okay to say, I I can't help you right now um, because you do have to protect yourself as, as well. Yeah. So I think one very uh, interesting perspective that I for myself got after this experience was, um, you know, who do you tell and should you tell people about your diagnosis while you're going through it? And part of it is because um, I think there's a very fine balance and you again have to know what kind of person you are. So there are some people who, you know, like the social support of like everybody in their circle knowing so like they might share it on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or wherever because that community support where everybody's wishing them well is what helps them get through this but then there are other people who would feel that that's too much sharing or too much information where um, they don't have any privacy left and people can be asking things in a way that uh, they might find inappropriate sometimes because concern also has a fine line of like are you asking too much and you don't want to share it or or do they think that you're all the time helpless because you had this and you're going through it but you want to be independent and you don't want them to see you from the lens of this diagnosis so I think figuring out what kind of a person you are is very important in whom you share it with so I think knowing it's important to share with some people, I think, because you need the social support to get through it. But at the same time, do you really want to just share it with your parents or your children or your family members? Or do you want to share it with the wider network of friends or you want to share it with the whole community and figuring out who might be the right people? Because even caregivers can sometimes not do it right because they are trying to do it from a place of good, but they might be asking too much or and that may in itself stress the patient out. So figuring out who would be the right people and strategically to tell, to help you recover in a way that you get the support, but at the same time, you're not overpowered with having to talk about it all the time and having these questions from well-wishers that you may not want to answer. It's really, really important. 
one, I think, you, you know, you're very right. The care, who you would kind of historically or traditionally think of as your caregiver, right? Your parent or your child or your spouse, significant other may not be the person that is equipped to be in that role for you. And I think figuring out, you know, it could be a friend or it could be, you know, I have people who bring, who are, you know, big families and they bring kind of not a random person, but an acquaintance they met a month ago because that person is able to be what they need in that moment. Yes, exactly. Um, and I noticed that, you know, with my own personal experience, because when this happened, like I was young, healthy, everything. So I, I didn't really want to talk about it with everybody and my extended audience. And so I did, I really didn't share it with a lot of people, but I think everybody I worked with knew about it because, you know, I was taking some time off, but um, there were many close friends who were back in India or in another city and just didn't know about it. But I, I felt like that actually helped me because if I had to talk about it with 10 different friends and discuss it and everybody's asking me how you're doing, that in itself was would, would make me keep reminding me that something's going on. And I didn't want that kind of reminders all the time. But at the same time, you know, we, it's nice to have some people checking in on you, some people being there for you who understand what you're going through. So that's something that I, I noticed. and thought was an interesting perspective that I didn't have before I went through it. No, it's definitely a fine line and something that you're right. I mean, I actually haven't thought about it until you said it, but like deciding who you're going to share it with and how and why you're going to share it with those people is really, really important. Um, Before we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't touch on or anything that you want to talk about? I, I think we touched on a lot of different points and uh, I, I don't really have too much else to add. The one thing I'd say is in terms of um, overall, you know, when a diagnosis of cancer develops, patients always worry, what did they do? And we see that a lot. So I say, don't take the blame so much on yourself that this is something you caused or something you did. But at the same time, there is a lot of information out there that can equip you with helping you lead a healthier life, which could potentially impact outcomes in different ways. So I think finding that balance of like motivating yourself to be your healthiest self or fittest self, but at the same time, not taking the blame as though this is something that you caused can be a way to deal with it in a positive way. That's a great way to end. Thank you. Where can listeners find you on social media if they want to connect with you? Sure. Uh, so my, my name, first name Urvi, U-R-V-I, and last name Shah, S-H-A-H-M-D. So Urvi Shah, M-D. Um, it, on Instagram and Twitter, I use that same handle. And you post such amazing photos of food. Um, you should have like a you know food photography blog on the side. Um, so everyone should follow you for really good recipes and great plant-based and healthy lifestyle tips. Thank you. Yeah, I, I try to post about research around nutrition and cancer or lifestyle and cancer. And then also um, my experience with, you know, how, how I follow these tips as well. So I, I you know, if, if it helps empower other people to follow it as well. So that's basically what I post about on Instagram. Well, thank you so much. This is wonderful.
Thank you for having me. It was great talking to you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Shah. We talk about so much on this episode, starting from her experience being diagnosed with cancer while training to become an oncologist, how that shaped how she practices medicine, the language of cancer, and then of course, nutrition and how that plays a role in cancer and living our healthiest lifestyle. She is a wonderful resource and a fantastic doctor. And I urge all of you to follow her at MD on both Instagram and Twitter. As always, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Dr. Duplinsky. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episodes of the podcast, share them with a friend or family member who you think might benefit as well. Getting exposure to these conversations and these episodes really helps me bring in new listeners and grow the show. You have a second. I would be honored if you can take a moment to leave a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts, again, to expand the show and to have more people listen to these conversations. Have a wonderful weekend, and I will see all of you next week.